everybody, Michael Davis here and welcome to Bone to Pick. We are extremely fortunate to have our uh, Artist of the Month for the month of May, one of the greatest drummers in the history of the instrument, Mr. Dennis McCrell with us today. Uh, Dennis is one of the most respected and in-demand drummers anywhere in the world. He's also a brilliant composer and arranger. He is an internationally renowned educator and clinician. Uh, he was discovered uh, in Las Vegas by the great Joe Williams. He was the last drummer hired by the legendary Count Basie and went on to have a, a long tenure with the orchestra. Uh, he, for many, many years now, has been the drummer of choice here in New York City uh, to the point where Mel Lewis, when he was passing, uh, stated that he wanted Dennis McCrell to replace him in his own band, and I can't even imagine any higher praise than that. Uh, he has recorded and toured with a who's who of the jazz world, including George Shearing, Claire Fisher, McCoy Tyner, Grady Tate, Maria Schneider, Nancy Wilson, Hank Jones for many years, Byron Stripling, Quincy Jones, just to name a few. He is currently a professor of jazz studies at Queens College here in New York City. Uh, he's been guest professor around the world, in particular at the Royal Conservatory in Aarhus, Denmark, as well as the Eastman School of Music in Rochester, New York. Um, I have, um, I'm honored to call Dennis a friend of mine. We have worked together for years and years on various projects. Um, and I met him uh, when I was on Buddy Rich's band back in the mid-80s, and he had just joined the Basie Band, and I was a fan of his uh, right away. And uh, I'm equally, as a, in addition to being a fan of his musicianship and writing and playing, I'm a fan of his as a person. He's one of the nicest and best people I've ever uh, gotten to work with. Honored that he was has played on a couple of my CDs, The Absolute Trombone and Absolute Trombone 2. So without further ado, Dennis, thank you so much for uh, being here today and being a, our guest this month on Bone to Pick. Well, thank you for having me. Again, if, when you, when you you say all that stuff about me, I keep wondering, who's he talking about? <laughs> but, but thank you, and I'm honored to be here. Yeah, well, let's, let's jump in and talk about your, uh, your early years. And I know you uh, were uh, a very gifted youngster and uh, what it was like being a, a prodigy at, at such an early age. I know you started the drums at age two, but maybe you can talk about those early years in your life. Well, the first thing is that um, I was blessed with, with parents that, like, my mother always believed that when you have children, you know, God gives you children, and you're supposed to do everything you can do to give them what they need. And uh, I grew up in a military family. My, my parents were both uh, Air Force. And so we moved around a lot. But in our house, the last thing we would pack would be the records. The first thing we'd unpack would be the stereo. So <laughs> there was always music. I didn't really know uh, um, anything about what I was listening to, you know, being, being a baby. But I was blessed that, you know, they had really good taste. So everything in the house was always swinging. <laughs> and so um, they always said that, for example, when I first started talking, uh, maybe they would play like uh, Sarah Vaughan or Ella Fitzgerald. And I used to scat along with, with them. So just by, by hearing music from 24-7, it just was part of me. And... Um, because we moved around so much, my mother recognized that, like, you know, he really loves music. He was really into this. So my dad was, a, being in the Air Force, we, we went to Japan, came back with chopsticks one day. And I pick, I guess, picked up chopsticks and started doing <laughs> that. So she said, he's supposed to be a drummer. So the first thing she did was go out and get, like, a little kitty set of drums. And I started working on that. And um, it, it's amazing. You... I think you may not even realize what's in you, but if you're lucky, as I was, to have people who kind of try to nurture that, it puts you in the right direction. Mm, very cool. Well, let's jump ahead to your the, the college experience. I know you went to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, which was a great program, probably still is. I'm, I'm a little out of touch with it, but uh, but it was there that in, in doing the research for this interview, I, I realized uh, your the important connection with the great Joe Williams, and maybe you could talk about your time in Vegas there and also uh, uh, what that was like uh, connecting with him at that age. You know, um, the thing about being in the military is we, you move around a lot. And we ended up in Las Vegas because uh, at the time, uh, my mother thought it would be, again, trying to give you, your children what they need, that, that it would be a good place for, you know, for us to live in terms of sons of musicians. There's a lot of music there. Uh, Vegas was one of those places at the time I lived there. This is like uh, middle 70s. 
it was kind of the tail end of like the Vegas that people see on television, you know, with, mm -hmm. with the Rat Pack and all of that. So all of the hotels all had orchestras. There were a, musicians, a lot of musicians who would, you know, spend a lot of time with all the road bands. They basically would either retire and go th and live there and play in a band. So it was a strange place because uh, at the Musicians Union in Vegas, um, all the, the you know the musicians would work at night, so they would do shows from eight o'clock to ten o'clock, and then ten, then midnight to two. So at from ten o'clock, some of the, uh, of the uh, there would be musicians that would play in big bands at the union. There would be musicians that would play after they got off work. So from like three o'clock in the morning to like eight o'clock in the morning, were like big bands. And so there was always this scene. Joe lived there because, you know, it was, it was, as a traveling artist, Vegas is a great place to live because you can kind of come and go as you please, and, and there are so many musicians, people just kind of leave you alone. Mm. But, again, because of so many musicians that were there, uh, even at the school when I went to college, the UNLV band was more like a pro band. A mm -hmm. lot of the, the, uh, it was, the, the students were great, and they all recognized the same thing as my mother did, why, you know, this is a good place to be a musician. But also the standard was really high because of all the pros that were in town. So Joe used to sometimes, when he'd be off, if the band was rehearsing, you know, we'd just be doing our, our regular rehearsal during the afternoon, and Joe would walk in and just hang out and just dig the band <laughs> because he liked the music. And so, again... It was the whole it, that whole time. There was a lot of older musicians that were really. It was a very nurturing place, and I think that when he saw me play with the band, uh, he kind of remembered me, and he was the one who had recommended me to basing. Mm. But again, I, he, he was great. All of the musicians in town, Carl Fontana used to work with the UNLV band. Uh, when I was there for a couple of years, Don Menza would come up and do improv classes. So it was kind of a it was very unusual to have musicians of that caliber, but just kind of like floating around and just walk in and, and just hang out with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Mm -hmm. um, following your time at UNLV, then you moved to New York for the initial first time before you got with the Count Basie, which we're going to talk about uh, extensively. But maybe talk about what that was like for you. I know for all of us, right? And you moved to New York. It's a scary process, and uh, <laughs> it's a process, that's for sure. But what that was like for you, and I know... Uh, you did some Broadway shows, and uh, I, which talk about a drummer. I wish I'd played a Broadway show with it. Be you at the top of the list, but uh, but um, what was that like for you when coming from uh, Vegas and then getting arriving here in, in New York? Um, I'm going to try to answer this in a very short way, although I don't <laughs> think it's really possible. Because what I really want to express is again from the from my very beginnings. You first asked me about like you know growing up and everything. All through my life, older musicians were very nice to me, and would even like like I'm saying when we, when we were stationed in Alaska, um, when I was ten years old, eleven years old, my mom used to take me to little jazz clubs, and and the older musicians would let me sit in and hang out. Um, when I was at UNLV, uh, we the last year I was there, we did a trip, uh, an overseas trip. We went to South America. Part of involved in that was to go to Los Angeles, which is where we flew to go to, to Brazil. Hmm. We did a gig in, in a jazz club Carmelo's. Sure. Jerome Richardson happened to live near that club, the great saxophone player, and saw me play. And it was Jerome who remember he liked what I was. He liked. He heard me. He said, "Yeah, I was this drummer," and we we talked and everything. We just exchanged numbers. I moved to New York. Uh, <laughs> As great as Vegas was in terms of a place to, to learn and everything, I hated Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I really hated it. <laughs> and I say this now uh, because the older you get, you realize some of the best things, some of the best experiences that are really doing you good, maybe you don't recognize that as good at the time. Right. So I remember I wanted to play jazz and I wanted to play all this music. Vegas was one of those places where it was primarily centered around commercial music. You had a lot of great players like Carl Fontana and mm -hmm. Joe, but it wasn't a jazz town. Right. You know, you're right. doing shows and, and it was a real disciplined thing. Um, I thank God I lived there because the reason I was able, as you pointed out, to be able to play Broadway shows was because of doing that kind of production work in Vegas. I used to do you know, oh, the, the Folie okay. Bergere okay. yeah. and a lot of those, you know, just, just gigs. So um, that was the place be between working at UNL, going to school at UNLV and playing 
strip shows in Vegas, I got really into the whole discipline about showing up on time, being able to read music, mm. being able to just take care of business. Mm -hmm. So fast forward, I left New I left Vegas and I moved to New York because it was the farthest place away from Vegas <laughs> I could go and still be in the United States. <laughs> That's really why I came to New York. Uh, like I say, I just I I needed I needed there was a creative element that I just didn't find there, so I I, I was lucky again. Uh, turns out I had an uncle who lived, a great uncle, my father's uncle. I asked him, "Can I come?" He said, "Yeah, you can come and stay." So I, I moved to New York. I was too young and too stupid to even know I needed a lot of money. <laughs> I just saved up a couple hundred dollars and I'm coming to New York. So. Um, the, the reason I bring up Jerome was because Jerome, who had seen me in, in Los Angeles with, with UNLV BAM, he had come to New York a couple months after I had moved here. I didn't really, I didn't know anybody at all. I remember he came and he had a gig at the Vanguard. I went down to Psalm. He, you know, reminded, you remember me? I was that kid. He w had recommended me to Luther Henderson, oh, okay. who was a good friend of his, who at that time was putting together a Broadway show. Uh, he, was, he was the orchestrator of a show called The First, which mm. was a Martin Charnin show. Mm. Okay. Uh, and so they hired me to just kind of play, not even in the pit. It was they were, and as you know, like a, when they first do shows, they will have like a, a rehearsal pianist and a rehearsal drummer, and they'll kind of warm up the dancers and just kind of play little grooves while they're working out the music. So that was like my first gig. Oh, okay. But from that, that's how I got involved, and in, in, in they, they liked the way I played, and they, they put me into the pit. Um, but again, it was because Jerome. You know, there were so many of the older musicians who kind of embraced me. Said, "Well, give, look, give the, he's kind of stupid, but give him a break." Okay. <laughs> but um, that's how I got involved in, in in doing that, and then just from that experience, would sub on other shows and meet other great musicians, and, and so on and so forth. Mm, nice. Well, let's let's jump in and talk about Count Basie. Such a uh, you know, you've done so many things, but we could do an entire interview just on your experiences with Count Basie, but. Maybe I, I have several things I wanted to ask you about it, but maybe uh, just talk about getting on the band, what that what that was like for you uh, and experiencing that. And I know I saw you play with the band. It sounded like you'd been playing with them for years and you'd been on for a couple months, I think, when we first met each other. But uh, maybe just to start off with, talk about what that feeling was like. A lot of drummers have, who have had the privilege of sitting in that chair will have you know, great stories of how they grew up listening to Basie and it was a lifelong dream. Again, I think God blessed me in so many ways. I was just stupid. I was like this kid <laughs> from the country. Uh, but um, when I got on that band, the show I was doing, the first, uh, it, 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 it ran for a while and it didn't do very well. It was closing. Uh, it was, I was new to New York. Didn't really have any money. It was getting cold. <laughs> New York has this particular edge to it. When it gets cold, you oh, know right. something bad is coming. <laughs> you, <Okay>. you think? <laughs> so I was kind of like, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I remember uh, Joe Williams again, who is always, I cannot thank him enough because in addition to just being the great Joe Williams, he was just always very down to earth. And he, even when I, when I moved to town, he gave me his number. Yeah, if you just give me a call, you need something. So I remember I was thinking about, I should probably get out of here and go back someplace warm and maybe let me go back to Vegas and see what's going on. So I called him, I said, you know, I don't know what's happening, what's going on in town. He goes, well, you know, I hear the Basie Band's looking for a drummer, maybe you should give them a call. So I said, okay. The truth was, I didn't really have any Basie records. I didn't, I, although I had grown up listening to jazz and I'm sure I knew who they were, I was not a fan of the band. Hmm. I really wasn't one of those drummers who grew up wanting to do that. I needed a gig. That's <laughs> what it was. <laughs> and I, my, my, at that time, because of the Vegas experience and now the New York experience, large groups I, I had experience with doing. So um, I thought, well, let me call them. Let me try it. You know, I, would, I, I knew it would be great to do, but... I, in a way, I, I stress how stupid I was. I think anybody, if you really knew the, the history of the band, the magnitude of the band, the, the depth of that band, most people would just be too, I would have been scared to death. I would never have called because I would have said, I'm, I can't do this. I think sometimes you get in situations where really ignorance is bliss. So I just, okay, I'll call him. So I called up the manager. And it was really one of those God-blessing things, because apparently they had needed a drummer a couple of weeks before, and they, I guess what, I didn't, what Joe didn't tell me, he had given them my number, and they tried to find me, 
and I guess I don't know where I was at. I was on the road someplace doing something, um, and I missed the call. Mm. And so when I called, they said, "Well, it's really, you know, we were trying to find you a while ago. We we have a guy that's that, that's just that's doing the band now. Uh, they got a, like an interim guy. Uh, we're not sure what he's going to work out or not. Let's just we'll see what happens with him, and if it works out, we'll we'll give you a call." So I said, "Okay." So I was still getting ready to pack my bags and go back to, to Vegas. And then a couple of weeks he called. He says, well, you know, I'm, I'll never forget. I was sound asleep and I woke up and, you know, because I've heard the phone, picked up the phone and says, yeah, this is the manager from Basie's band. Basie wants to know, do you still want to do the band? I'm like, well, yeah, okay. Okay, good. <laughs> Rehearsal, January, blah, blah, blah. Be here, such and such, such, such. I hung up the phone and went back to sleep. And, <laughs> And it was really one of those things where, again, I, I was just, okay, I'm glad I have a job, but I just had no idea what that whole thing entailed. And I really, um, it, was, it was just one of those almost like an out-of-body experience. <laughs> you know, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, okay, sure, I'll do it. And then I went back to bed. That's awesome. You know, it's, it's so, uh, thanks for sharing all that. I would have thought it was the complete opposite because yeah. when I look at, you know, it, it's a band that has such a, an important lineage of drummers, uh, um, as do many big bands. But that band in particular, but you look at it and Joe Jones and Sonny Payne and Harold Jones and, and yourself, I put you in that same league and, and uh, important part of the lineage. And uh, it's funny that you were just, yeah, yeah whatever. <laughs> well, again, you know, I knew, naturally, I, I was a student of big bands and I definitely knew there, you know, it was a it was a major band. I knew Basie was Count Basie. But I think um, w when you're young, naturally, first of all, anything that's older, you think, well, that's, you know, that's, that's old. I'm not going to be part of that, you know. <laughs> and I was really more into, like, I loved, like, Thad and Mel. I loved Toshiko's band. You know, a lot of the bands that were at that time just starting to come out, that to me was like, well, this is modern. Mark, this yeah. is really hip, you know. Mm -hmm. And Ellington, Basie, that all seemed like, well, this is, you know, that's nice and all, but I don't, you know. So I just didn't know. And again, I cannot stress enough, that band is so deep. It, it's kind of like, you know, if you were to go to, to Egypt and start going into the pyramids, you, you, yeah, it's a building, it's kind of funny shaped, you know, it's like, yeah, okay. But when you really realize just the, the history, what you're dealing with, you can't even, it takes a while to yeah. gasp. Okay. It's, uh, you know, we were talking about it before the interview, but uh, I was on Buddy, like I mentioned earlier, I was on Buddy's band at the same time. and. And Buddy uh, pretty much did what he wanted uh, mm -hmm. with regards to anything. But this was, he adored Count Basie. Mm -hmm. And I remember, it's the only time I ever saw this happen, he postponed a trip from us driving from Washington, D.C. to Alabama, mm -hmm. which was obviously going to involve an overnight uh, drive as well. And he said, you know what, we're staying in D.C. to go hear Basie's band, and we'll leave mm -hmm. as soon as this is over. So meet us, uh, meet, meet at the bus at uh, 11 o'clock after your set. So for its basis impact was felt you know mm -hmm. uh, everywhere in the in the music world um following his passing the band obviously continues continues to this day but i was curious how um i think he worked under eric dixon thad and frank foster among how was that i was particularly interested in what that was like for thad to come back and lead the band and 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 since he was a part of it before he started his own band but how how was that the experience once the other leaders came in you know, it, uh, even what you just said about with, with Buddy, again, when I first got on that band, you know, I tried to approach it just like it, it's a gig. Let me go up. You know, I went out and got records and tried to really, you know, prepare for the job. But when you start talking about like just those names, like someone like Buddy would actually wait. I would start having, I started very quickly having experiences like that where like, you know, we'd be playing someplace and... Quincy Jones would show up and then Joe Jones was there. And then it's you start realizing, wow, this is really serious, you know? And then you start realizing <laughs> how deep the water really was. <laughs> and it's kind of like one of those slow, it's like a slow awakening of just like really where you are and who you're dealing with. Um, the fact that, you know, Thad Jones would come and work with the band, you know, Eric Dixon, who Eric Dixon was the was the, the, the senior saxophone player on the band for those mm. who don't know who he was. Um, guys had been on that. I was I was so young. I was I think um, most everybody had grandkids older than me, okay? <laughs> literally. So I was really too young. to. It wasn't like, you know, we're all hanging out and partying together, like that kind of thing. But the, the, the longer you would listen to guys t tell stories, I think Freddie Green was sitting down one day. And they were talking about Billy, 
yeah, I remember Billy did this and Billy used to go out. And then it, it was a minute before I was there talking about Billy Holiday. Hmm. So this kind of stuff started happening a lot. So you're working with all these, you know, with Basie, you're working with, with Thad Jones and Frank Foster. When you, when you sit across the aisle of somebody who wrote the music that you grew up hearing, and both, like when Frank w was on the bus, he would sit in pen and start writing arrangements. He would be listening to something else and he would just sit there and write all this music. And you're looking at this and you realize, you know, this is, <laughs> you know, he probably wrote shiny stockings like that, you know, and, and that, that's, like I say, that's kind of when you realize the depth. Basie himself, uh, of all the leaders I've ever worked with, and Basie was just, uh, he was like a grandfather. The thing that, um, I think a lot of people will, will you know, when, that, when I talk about these people, we think about them, the great musicians. You know, um, the level of humanity that all these people, just how gracious they were as people, uh, the love that they showed the musicians will stick with me long after the records, mm. you know. Basie, when I first was on the BAM, and this is Count Basie, I remember when he, when he, the first rehearsal, he, you know, he rolled in on his golf cart, and it, it dawned on me, I don't even, I had to ask somebody, what, what do I call him? <laughs> you know, like, hey, Bill, hey, you know, what, what, do, what do you guys call him? You know, sir, you know, I, I really didn't even know how to address him. He was, it, was like, it was like when the Queen of England sure, walks in or something. Yeah. And someone said, oh, we call him Chief, you know, so I could speak to him as, as that. And when all these guys would come in, you realize how deep they were. But I'll never forget, I was, I was so stressed out once I got on the gig, I got sick. I had a cold. And I remember I was you know, looking at the book and trying to you know, nurse my little cold. And Basie would call up. He goes, you okay? Are you taking your vitamins? You, want to, you, know, you need anything? You know, and I'm like, this is Count Basie asking me, do I need Kleenex? Oh, wow. you know? like, wow. <laughs> so um, all, of the great, all of the leaders were great. The Music-wise, music music -wise, they were great. Um, but it was them as people is the experience that I'll never forget. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, definitely a different leadership style than Buddy, I would say, as I recall. <laughs> you know, even Buddy, I remember, I remember that game. I'll never forget that because it's, it, I, I was so amazed that somebody as great as Buddy Rich would actually, like you say, wait. And hear, first of all, one thing that used to happen with the bands, if you remember, when, when one band would come into town, I remember uh, the same thing. We were, we were played in this one gig, and it was Maynard's band was there. I think they, they were just leaving, and we were just coming. And our bus was there, and we pulled, our bus pulled alongside Maynard's bus. And this is when Thad had the band. So Thad got out, and it was kind of like, like two aircraft carriers. <laughs> and, the, you know, the, the, the admiral of one aircraft carrier came out, and then Maynard came out, and they greeted each other. We played in Canada, and Rob McConnell we, uh, came to hear the band. Okay, and that's, that's what I mean. Like the people think about the music as 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 great as it is, but you really, when you see these people, the respect that they had for each other. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I remember being kind of I remember being intimidated a, a bit by Buddy. And when I say a bit, it was only because I was scared to death. But he was sat at a table right in front of it, and he was just so. Um, I, I believe he went out of his way to make to not intimidate me, mm. you know, to not make me feel like, you know, and I, I remember feeling really relaxed. Where when I first heard he was there, I was like, oh my god, what am I, what am I gonna do? But those guys had that way of like respecting people. I mean, they could they could go either way if they chose, but the, he was so respectful for the band to sit there, and he and he stayed the whole night. He did yeah. not leave. I knew yeah. that, and I just it, it filled me with this level of like. Wow, this guy is that great, but yet still was humble enough to to pay his respects. Yeah, absolutely. But they all, all of his, all the band, all the great band leaders did that. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, and, and you know, especially nowadays, everybody knows the famous Buddy Rich speech tapes and all that stuff. And and he had that side to him, but I totally agree with you. He had had, had another side that uh, mm -hmm. is often not talked about. Well, you talk about the great leaders of the Basie Band. You are in that category as well, and you went went on to come back to the band. Maybe you could talk briefly about what that experience was like. I know you were there for a few years, right, uh, leading the band, but that must have been a, a homecoming and uh, and putting on a different hat, you know? You know, I, like, we started this, and you gave me this great intro, and you, you just put me in a category of the great leaders of the Basie Band, so now I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta stop you there. You know, I never saw myself as, um, in any way, in that category. When I used to work, when I, I saw, when they called me to come back to the band, and I gave you the analogy earlier, 
that band was like a family. It's kind of like like a like a family business. And it was one of those times when, like, when Ma and Pa have the family store and they're doing really good, but then you get older and you grow up and you leave. When they, when things get tough or they need help, you go home. Mm -hmm. So when I came back, it was never as I never saw myself as like the leader or the Basie band. It was more like I always and I when I would introduce when I would talk about the band, I would always say, "This is Mr. Basie's band." Mm. And I always felt that I was kind of there as if I was like one of the kids to try to represent him in a way that would make him happy. Mm. So um, coming back to the band was it was it was difficult in a way because at that time Bill Hughes, who was the who had in in the in the line of the band, uh, Basie, and then Eric Dixon was the interim leader. Thad Jones came on until he left. Frank Foster was there. Grover Mitchell, who was the lead trombone player uh, when I was on the band, became the leader. When he left the band, Bill Hughes, who was the bass trombone player, mm -hmm. uh, he had the band. When Bill was getting older, and he was like in his 80s, he was getting sick, uh, that's when I came back out. So it was really more of a, of a situation of trying to to, to help them and to, and to do what I could do. Mm. So it was a great... To be able to um, stand in front of the band and count off any of those iconic pieces and pl and have it played at a tempo you like, <laughs> you know, it's like I can't tell you. Um, I, I recognize that a that is another one of God's blessings, and it was a gift that that I recognize very few people have ever been able to do, or to be able to if you see that things need changing or you need to fix this or or do whatever you can do whether it's you know work on the, the band's PR or the, the business stuff um, when you're young you recognize that you know you you see things from your perspective mm -hmm. I think that another one of the greatest gifts that I ever was ever been given was to be in that role to really begin to see what he had to see you know and and you i think we're all in this position now and and you yourself having a big band and when you when we were kids on the bands and you know you can sit and be and complain about well, i don't like this gig and i don't like what we're doing here when you all of a sudden get to be in the position to see like why they're doing that and why this goes the way it goes it's it's an education that very few people get, but that I, I, I hope everybody does. Because <laughs> mm -hmm. then you really, especially being a sideman, you really <laughs> see, you know, you, I just, I apologize to anybody I was a pain in the neck to. Because <laughs> when you stand up there and you, you know, cats are doing stuff and you're like, all right. Yeah. But at the same time, it makes me understand why Basie was so kind to me because I think he recognized he's young. He'll he'll find out. Mm -hmm. I found out. Yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, very well said, and uh, no truer words have been spoken. Um, let's jump ahead a little bit. You come back to New York. Now you're a lot more. You have a much higher profile, of course, um, and pretty quickly become the drummer of choice around town, uh, playing with uh, the likes of Buck Clayton. Carla Blay, the Dizzy Gillespie All-Star Big Band, and, and the one that really is um, a tip of the hat to you is when Mel asked that you be the drummer to, re to replace him when he was passing on. Um, what was that coming back to New York and, and the experience in particular with, with Mel, how, how that uh, must have been such a positive effect on you? The one thing about all of, like we, we've you mentioned a lot of the guys in the band, the great leaders, and all the great musicians I think that we've all had a chance to work with, and what I've have learned from a lot of them, from most of them, is how forward-thinking they all were. Even Basie mm. was always kind of like, you know, like you would think guys like him would, well, we did this and we would just revel in the past. He was always like, so where are we going next? What's 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 mm. coming? Um, and I, th that really inspired me. So when I left the band, uh, it was not because, you know, I hated so-and-so or didn't like the blah, blah, blah. It was just like, I, I felt I needed to, to grow. So coming back to New York was, was great because there was so much music and there were so many musicians. I just wanted to do a lot of different things. Um, the Vanguard Orchestra at that time, when I first used to come to New York, 
even like being on the road with Basie, we would come, uh, you know, we, maybe we'd have time off. The Vanguard was kind of like the place you'd go like, like you were coming home. And it was like when you go down to see Mel, it was like going home to see Mom, you know. <laughs> Mel was another one of the other great musicians who was very nurturing, who, you know, when you were a young drummer, you know, you'd go down and Mel would, you know, well, this is what you should do. You should think about this and blah, blah, blah. And it was, it was good. It was, a, it was a sense of community that you felt that you belonged someplace. So um, it was to be able to, to help the band, to be able to, to, to just even to, to sit in that chair and to play that music was, was, a, was a blessing. Mm -hmm. Same thing. I, 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 was, I didn't sub on the band for a long time because Joey Barron, Danny Gottlieb, John Riley, Adam Nussbaum, Kenny Washington, I mean, there was a lot of guys who were, were doing it. Um, so to be even included as a sub to be able to do that and to sit in that chair in that place and hear from that perspective the music that you with Basie we used to listen to Thad Mel on the bus you know so <laughs> to, to to sit in that perspective it was it was it was, it was great yeah that is awesome. I don't want to say it's rare for a drummer because there are drummers who have uh, have uh, excellent uh, abilities as a composer arranger but yours is to me, uh, stands out uh, at the top of the list of drummers who've uh, developed themselves as, as a composer and arranger. Maybe talk a little bit about how you got into that and and how that path has worked out for you. Obviously, I think it's helped in terms of your profile in the in the jazz world, and, and you've done a lot of projects where you've just been the composer and arranger. So I was interested in, in um, how that got started for you, so maybe some of your influences, and just how that kind of evolved in your in your career. I've always felt, I don't really see myself so much as a drummer. I always thought that God put me here to, to be a musician. And one of, as I said, when we were growing up, my, my, my parents loved music. They were big Jimmy Smith fans. It was always Oregon. Mm -hmm. And partly, if, always with Jimmy Smith's records, there would always be like maybe the trio with Grady Tate and Kenny Burrell. But there was always the Oliver Nelson big band sessions. So I kind of was, I always felt I was more of a frustrated piano player. I always wanted to be able to do that. Um, and drums were kind of the first thing. I, that was the easiest way to get in the band, so I, I could play. <laughs> but to be able to make that sound, I, 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 if I could do it in real time by playing piano, I would, but I can't. So I, I kind of gravitated and started writing music because I wanted to make that sound in some way. Um, again, Basie was very nurturing. He said, yeah, you write something for the band. It was always very encouraging. Um, it just, the sound always fascinated me. I used to try to play trombone. Mm. I, was, I was sad. <laughs> <laughs> I seriously doubt that. Oh, I, and I'm I glad you don't play trombone. <laughs> I love the bass trombone. Bass trombone is still one of my favorite instruments. Yeah, so it's I, a great but instrument. All the different colors of, of the orchestra I just loved. And so to be able to at least write and to, be, and to contribute to that was very appealing to me. So um, trying to get into that world and studying a lot of the, 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 the different writers, it just kind of felt like a natural progression. Hmm. The thing about, again, being kind of stupid, I didn't know I couldn't do it. I was lucky in that a lot of the, re the, the recordings that were out during that time, uh, I was really into Billy Cobham as a drummer, and I would look on the liner notes, and he, oh, so he did the arrangements. So, oh, okay, and then you look at Louis Belson, oh, he, he did the arrangements. Bill Bruford, I loved. He mm, wrote for his right. band. I didn't. It, I wasn't of, of of a generation that didn't know drummers weren't supposed to be able to do this, because at the time you didn't. You, you still you don't see a lot of drummers doing it. But at the time, the the drummers that I liked seemed to be all writers, mm -hmm. so or at least capable of writing music. So I thought, I guess I should, I should be able to do this. So I didn't know that it was un, unusual for me to do it. Mm, very cool. I want to ask you a couple of these kind of specific questions from your perception as a, as a leader, but also as a drummer. Um, as you know, we have a lot of folks, uh, brass players, that uh, follow our interview series, and we appreciate you guys doing that. Uh, I was curious, you know, when you look at the, I think every chair in a big band is important, mm -hmm. and, and the third trombone player can tank a band, you know, almost single-handedly, but <laughs> I, th I think, um, and not picking on third trombone players, I've been that third trombone player, but... Um, um, you know, I think that the, to me, the three of the most important chairs, if not the most, are the lead trumpet, the drums, and the bass. Obviously, mm -hmm. lead out to a very important lead trombone as well, and bass trombone, like you pointed out. But to me, those three are really kind of cornerstone important uh, chairs in the band. From from the drummer's perspective, what do you what do you look for in a lead trumpet player? And also, you know, maybe a more specific question, but also what you look for in a bass player. Well. Um 
In terms of, I guess to answer your question directly, what I look for in a lead trumpet player is somebody, A, who has a concept. I think a lot of, of lead players, they think, I can hit the note, I got high chops, I'm cool. You know? mm -hmm. But what I've found from working with really great lead players is that number one, uh, that they have, in addition to a sound, uh, they also just have a clear concept. One of the things I, I like to tell drummers like the, that I teach now, if you, I give a visual analogy, let's say like you're, you're driving down the road and there's a car that's in front of you and you know, we've all been there, the driver is kind of erratic and he's slowing down and speeding up and, and going from lane to lane. Your first reaction is you just want to back up and get away from that. Right, right. But what you find comforting is that like when there's somebody there that's consistent, that's clear, you know if they're going to go left, they go left. And they're, 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 they're people you can, you can work with. It's the same thing with both a bass player or a lead trumpet player, or, or really musicians in general, but especially in those particular chairs. Um, when lead players have a very clear concept as far as um, you know, where they want to put the time, where they like to lay back, or where they like to, where they want to, what they want to do phrasing-wise. I think a lot of drummers um, have, have, we kind of have bad programming. <laughs> and I, let me explain. People will stress out drummers and they think, okay, your job is time. That's what you're here for. Your job is to keep the time. And, and from, from birth, you're told that's your world. Basie's experience was great for me because growing up and thinking that's my job, I was thinking that until I started playing with Freddie Green, and he's like, "No, that's my job." <laughs> and I, I kind of came to this this crisis of, of of concept. I didn't really know well what what am I here to do, and it really. Uh, from working with with a band of that caliber, you realize that like number one, um, you, I needed like a, a, a concept. We were traveling around all the time, and we were doing a lot of flying. So I started looking at uh, at like people in that environment, which were airplanes, airline captains. I started seeing a big band like an airplane. It's a large, mm -hmm. very sophisticated. Uh, piece of equipment that's got a lot of people who are committed and 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 you know they're there to make sure that everything goes right. You've got two pilots, you've got flight attendants, you've got air traffic control, you've got a lot of people. You don't need one person to say I'm going to be the hero of the day and do everything. <laughs> big bands are like that. You've got great big bands. You've got good lead players. You've got pros. Most everybody, unless they've had some horrible disfiguring accident, they got two feet, so they can tap one of them. <laughs> so, you, you know, they got time. Your job is to pretty much, like a pilot of an airplane, uh, just kind of oversee things. And if something goes wrong, that's when you jump in and fix it. You've got about two to three seconds to do something. Lead players are like, you know, section leaders, they know what they're doing. That's why they're there. My, I see myself as a drummer is to kind of reinforce them. And with a strong trumpet player, good lead player, if they want to do something, if, if their concept is strong enough where I can hear it and their sound is, is strong enough where uh, they have a good sound, you know, if I'm, if I'm not stupid, I can hear what they want and just try to embrace them and give them what they need. Same mm. thing with the bass player. Mm -hmm. Most people listen to the bass for the time instead of the drums, you know, because that, that's where you're going to get the pitch from as well. So instead of trying to drag somebody along thinking, I got it, I, I know what I'm doing, I try to embrace them. And if, if, but, but again, if they're strong enough and, and their concept is clear, then I just go with them. Mm. Awesome. That explains why you make everything feel good. You're, you're always uh, including everybody in your in your thought process and in the way you listen. That's so, so well said. Well, you touched on uh, and just from that last answer, I can uh, I know why you're such a renowned educator. You're now a professor of jazz studies at Queens College. Great program you guys got going out there. Michael Mossman is the head of the program, I think. Mike had been the head of the program for many, many years. He's actually on sabbatical at the moment, uh, oh, okay. but, but he'll be back next semester. Uh, David Berkman is the okay. department chair at the moment, and Antonio Hart is. Uh, they those three have been on the front line for for many, many years, and so yeah. I was very blessed that they asked if I would would join them. Yeah, it's a fantastic program. Boy, what a deal if you're a New York person, mm -hmm. uh, tuition-wise, uh, yeah. check it out. But 
talk, maybe talk a little bit about your approach. I know you spent some time as a guest professor at the Royal Conservatory in Aarhus, which is a wonderful place. I've actually yeah. done a couple things there myself, mm -hmm. and uh, I love it there. I love the people there, and uh, mm -hmm. it's a great program. As well as my alma mater, nice to see them uh, bringing some stars into the <laughs> Eastman uh, world there. So, But maybe just, and the list goes on and on. I mean, it's, it's uh, too long to mention them all, but... but just talk about your what you're doing in Queens and maybe just in general. I know you're out a lot as a guest artist uh, in Europe and uh, and what's how you're approaching that these days. Well, at Queens, it's a master's program, so uh, um, the, the students are older and and we have a lot of students from. We have a very large international presence as well. Mm. In a way. Um, it's a, a again. I I have been blessed so much to be able to travel, as you point out, internationally, and now to be able to work at Queens, where we have such a, a large uh, uh, international presence of, of musicians. It's great because it keeps you. It's 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 humbling to know that the music that we love, a all the people like Basie and and and. Thad Jones and Buddy, who have been, in a way, we've all been missionaries. It's like you get to see the fruit that they have, have you know, the seeds that they sowed are now growing, mm -hmm. and, and that's when we, that's, mm -hmm. that's who we get at Queens. Mm -hmm. um, in in the work that I did, like I said, did, did in Denmark, same thing. It's inspiring because you see so many great players, and they're all playing great. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, like for me as a as a now an older musician. Um, to be able to try to, to, to focus on the professional aspect of, of, of doing this for a career. Uh, it, it's very, it's, I find it very rewarding and it helps me to, to give, at least to feel a little bit like I'm kind of given something because so many people gave me stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, it's also a very steep learning curve because from being a, a, a player and a, just traveling all the time, to be in a situation now where you really have time to work with people over like a semester, over two semesters, over three semesters, it, it's it, it, it's a it's it's been a learning curve to try to figure out okay, not just what they need for the moment, but for to, to see people develop for a while. So it's kind of a of a of a, of a new thing, but I'm I'm really loving it. Oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, <laughs> this was quite a few years ago now, but uh, there was a one point where at Queens College, I saw, I saw a program from a, one of the jazz ensemble concerts, and the trombone section consisted of Conrad Herwig <laughs> and Joe Feidler, two of the best. I'm like, what? <laughs> mm -hmm. But they had gone back to pick, and they just yeah, happened right. to be there at the same time, and uh, I'm sure Mike. Uh, had a good time with that trombone section. It's about as good as it gets anywhere in the world. <laughs> That's the thing. What's neat about Queens is because, like I said, because we have some students who really are discovering jazz, and you know they, they can play, but it's still kind of like a, a new, almost like a second language that you're trying to, to develop. Others are like pros. You know, I, I'm not going to say who's there now, but like some of the issues that we have is like, you know, they got to go on the road, do their gig and come back and they're, <laughs> doing, you know, we're emailing stuff. Right. So it's great because you have, it's one of the few places where you have that interaction between not just faculty and students, but like, you know, you're studying next to people who, you know, are on the road doing major high profile gigs. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a very fertile environment. That's very cool. Very cool. Well, I wanted to just, uh, not to take up, you've been so gracious, and this is, I'm having a ball, I could sit here and talk about your career all day, but uh, you have such an incredible resume of folks that you've played with, and I just wanted to throw out some names at you and maybe just give some quick thoughts and memories that, uh, from the experiences you have, but uh, this seemed like a great one to start with, Hank Jones. <laughs> This is hard because again, there's. I was with Hank for about fourteen years, so oh, I had no, oh, I didn't know that. It's okay. hard to. I'm going to try to like. It's hard to say something quick about okay. all these people. <laughs> um, again, what you learn in terms of just musically working with somebody who played with Charlie Parker is. It's kind of hard <laughs> to condense that in a couple of words. Um, in addition to being one of the the the. the you, you know, we, we have this award now that the, the NEA gives out the Jazz Master Awards. Hank Jones was a jazz master. Mm. Every time he would sit down to play, it was like from God's hand to his fingers, and he would just create all this music. And he's the one thing about Hank is that, like, again, you don't even know how deep the water is because until you start playing with him. Because when he would speak to you, he was always very gracious. He was never. Um, 
uh, intimidating. He was he was just somebody who you would just never know if you just walked up, you know, saw him at the store. You would just never know how deep he was and how great of a musician he was because he was just such a, a wonderful person. Um, but that I was with uh, Hank's trio, which was George Mraz and Hank, and it was just every night. Sometimes George and I would just look at each other, just like. <laughs> Did you hear that? And I was like, wow. And and George, another jazz master, for he would for him to like look at me like, wow, that was pretty amazing. Did you get that? And he'd been with him for thirty years. Every night was like a was like a, a master class, and he could just do that six nights a week. We'd play like you know like a, a club, and every night would be like that. Mm, awesome. It was amazing. I love that photo at the Vanguard of the the three Jones brothers and uh, mm -hmm. and Thad and uh, Elvin are kind of like goofing around and uh, mm -hmm. Hank's just like you know kids kids you know you can imagine what he's thinking. You know Hank, in addition to being a great player, I think he was a great role model because he number one always was aware of of his role like like what you, that that picture is very important because Hank was always very dignified. He recognized that not only is music important but how you function, how you mm. carry yourself, how you treat people. Uh, the band, we were just always very clear that like we were representing more than just ourselves. Uh, musicians over the years, I think, sometimes maybe don't have those kind of role models to where um, you don't recognize that people who don't even like music, they may not know jazz, they may not know music, but they'll see you as a musician and how you act is going to be their first uh, maybe their first opening to the music, and if you act stupid, they're thinking, "Well, I don't like music." You know, but with Hank, mm. Hank was always a gentleman, no matter who he spoke to. Awesome. One of my personal favorite musicians, and I know you did. I think Jada Rama was the uh, record you played on, but, uh, but uh, Claire. Claire Fisher. Mm. What was what was that experience like? Claire was another one. Uh, Jada Rama, and he did a record uh, called the Jazz Core, which is like a. a, a, a Claire was was a genius, yeah, and people, yeah. everyone recognized that. I think um, he got really excited about certain things, like sound always fascinated, fascinated him. Claire, uh, talking to him about music was, he's one of those people who will say things and then like years later, you know, <laughs> you kind of, wow, you know, you, you get it. And it, that happened a lot. He, I, I didn't get a chance to, to work with him a lot because he lived in California. Right. We met because uh, he, he was in Interlock and the, and the Basie band played there and Thad Jones had the band. And th same thing. He came to hear the band and Thad and him were talking. And he liked, he, he saw something in my playing that he liked and he asked me to be on that record. And you know, I had listened to you know salsa picante and all the the the, the 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 bands that he'd had, and I knew of him as this amazing musician. Yeah. But again, I I don't think it's I I don't have the time <laughs> to, to to talk about <laughs> his genius because mm -hmm. it, it, he was just was somebody who just heard things that it was amazing, and yet when you played with him, he was in he was there in in the music. Mm. My next one, Grady Tate. Like, just to see that you're involved with one of the great drummers and he's hired you, that's got to be a special uh, feeling. Uh, again, from, from birth, I didn't even know it. But, you know, again, we, we form our concepts by records that we hear. I had no idea that the drummer that I was really trying to be was Grady because Grady was the drummer on all the, the Jimmy Smith records. The, the records that, that I grew up listening to, I didn't know that the, all the New York session guys like Grady, like Bob Cranshaw, you know, were, were doing that stuff. And so um, to meet Grady, when I, when I first came to town, I know I gotta, I'm trying to make this short. <laughs> when I first came to town, it was the same thing. I, I was, didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, Grady was, was, was the musical director of the Lena Horn show. Linda Twine was the conductor, but I think Grady was the contractor of the band. He was kind of like the, the, the straw. Uh, and somehow, I don't even know how it was that I, maybe I just either like was hanging out and I knocked on the stage door and like, can I come in? I, I just wanted to, 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 I didn't know what to do. But Grady was another, he was one of the first New York musicians, yeah, come on in. And you know, he kind of just like was very nice to me. Um, I didn't know what it was that when I was growing up as a player, the fact that he was so clean, the fact he was so tasty, so clear. He affected my musical concept in ways I didn't know because I didn't know it was him. Because mm. I, when you're growing, when you're growing up, you don't have a lot of money. You may be able to, like listen to records for, at friends' house or people will give you tapes. I didn't know he was on all that stuff. So 
just his ability to be able to translate a groove clearly. His time was good. Everything, everything he played just sounded right. So for he, to be able to, to work with him, just even to, to, to talk to the man was amazing. <laughs> when he called me, um, I, I played on, on the record where he sang. He, Joe Williams and Grady to me, and Joe Williams, Grady, Tony Bennett, they were probably for me like the, 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 the greatest male jazz singers, mm. not just in terms of like their ability, but just their, the way they were as people. Mm. Awesome. We touched, of course, on your, your uh, talents as a composer and arranger, and you put those to great use working with McCoy Tyner. What mm. was that uh, <laughs> experience like? Same thing. McCoy is one of the most humble people. I mean, like, he was, um, I met McCoy through Earl Gardner. Oh, okay. Great talk about lead trumpet players. Earl's great prototype as far as somebody with a concept. I love playing yeah, Earl. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he was playing lead for uh, for McCoy's big band, and he recommended me to McCoy. I remember meeting him. When you meet him, he's another one of those jazz legends that you really you, you don't even know what to how to address him, but he's just so down to earth. M writing for McCoy was was great because you could be the saddest arranger in the world, <laughs> but you could write nothing. But when he plays it. It sounds great, you know, so just doing that was like, wow, this is great. I'm an arranger. I sound, you know, but it was like, it was because of him. And uh, the, the, I wrote several arrangements for him on the records here, and we did two projects in Cologne with the, with the WDR. Uh, I did uh, full concerts of, of, of arrangements for, of all his music or songs that he liked. And to hear, just humble, that's, about mm. the, that's, that's the word. He's just so... Whatever you want to do, you want to do another. Yeah, I'll do it. You know, bam, great. You know, and yeah, I think we need another one for some technical. Oh yeah, no problem. Bam. You know, and but everything was just easy. Hmm. And we'll finish up with a couple of brass folks since we'll uh, get back to our brass roots here. But uh, I was, I didn't know this, but I saw on your uh, your uh, discography that you'd done some work with Canadian Brass, mm -hmm. which is, of course, we all know uh, one of the. Uh, most popular and one of the um, one of the best brass quintets going for since they're still going still years mm -hmm. and years. It's a pretty amazing group. And what was that you know, experience like? As a, when I was the, 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 being in New York and you get called to do recordings, as you know, the first thing that you do is you try to come in and and give people what they need and just try to stay out of the way. So I didn't interact with them. I didn't you know I I knew who they were. I knew they were great. But again, you go in the drum booth, you play, and you try not to say anything stupid, just get in the way. <laughs> so I, I didn't really interact with them. It's only like, so I think one of the downsides about what we do for a living, and especially in, when you're a side person, is that you don't really get, if, if you go on the road with people, that's when you get to know them and get to interact with them. You know, to be able to listen to the, a record and you hear yourself and you hear them, it's, it's another one of those out-of-body experiences. You're like, wow, that's, you know, those, those guys are great. What are you doing here? <laughs> so it, it was a great experience, but I don't really, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to them or meet them or ask them any questions because, you know, they're there to function and they function at such a high level. You don't want to get in the way like, hey, what are you? <laughs> so. Yeah, cool. And lastly, uh, a very good mutual friend of ours, a former classmate of mine back at Eastman and, and uh, bandmate of yours on the Basie Band. I know you worked on uh, some of his solo projects, but Byron Stripling. <laughs> Talk about great lead trumpet players. <laughs> you know, as I gave that whole thing about like, you know, what I look for in a, in, a, in a lead player, a lot of it is because over the experience you play with people like that and they kind of, when you work with people like Byron, you, that's kind of when you realize, well, wow. Now I know what I need because now that's it. I, I hear Byron, Byron was always a strong player. Um, with Byron, I could always hear him. It, Byron, it was kind of like you know, like with uh, Rudolph on Christmas. You know, <laughs> it's like no matter what, what the, the the venue was, what the sound was. Sometimes the sound's not good, but with Byron, I always knew where it was. And and as a drummer, when you work with people like that, that's that's when you know this is good. Derek Watkins was another yeah, amazing player. This is, is one of the greatest uh, of any generation. But it's no like question. it's it's amazing with people like Byron. Who Byron's another person who again, and I, I to, to a lot of younger people, you know, when you're young, you don't know a lot, and you don't necessarily know what 
God has for you in your life. But sometimes you start off down a road and you, you try to learn. I remember when I met Byron, we were both the youngest in the band. And I didn't, even the question you just asked, as, as, as Byron, Byron is, is now an established great player, we didn't, I didn't know him as that. He was mm -hmm. just like my age, as another guy on the band. But you could tell even then, this guy is special. Mm -hmm. And you, know, you learn from people that you, um, that you work with. Sometimes when you're in college or you're in high school or whatever, there are people that you see as your peers and maybe they get on your nerves or you like so much, or you, you, you don't know them. But you find, I, I, I suggest to younger people, always be cool because you never know down the road that person, when they become who they're going to become, you know, they're going to be people who, A, you're going to grow to know and respect. And Byron, I remember him uh, as, like I said, just another guy who was new on the band. But I've learned so much from playing with him. And uh, now he's a great conductor with the Columbus Jazz Orchestra. Sure. As an arranger, I, Byron commissioned me to, to do arrangements for him, and that helped me to grow as a writer. Just just the process of working and giving him what he needed. You know, um, he's somebody who has really not just helped me as a as a as a musician with my concept, but also somebody who's kind of inspired me because I remember when Byron was questioning things, you know, and 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 we were both growing, but to see that he actually practice what he preached you know I, doing clinics with him has been an, is, is an education I'm gonna find mm -hmm. myself writing down what, what, he, <laughs> what he's saying you know and because I because he's somebody who actually did it he actually yeah. will, will tell you something but he'll actually walk that walk and you can see wow that stuff really works I'm gonna write this down <laughs> so he, yeah he's inspiring I really I gotta give it up I gotta give it up yeah I've seen his clinics and they are inspiring really uh, mm -hmm. tremendous well Dennis you just you I feel like this whole interview is just, uh, you've given us such great uh, wealth of knowledge and advice. And I was going to end by asking uh, what you'd have, your advice for young people. But if you watch this interview, you've got, you got an incredible amount of uh, great stuff. And I, and I love what you just said. Like, you meet people when you're young, you just don't know, you what, don't know. where that path is going to cross again. And you've you, you got to just think about that. But instead of that, just as we as we wind down here, what's on uh, what's on the horizon for Dennis McCrell? What what are your upcoming projects? What are your goals? And I know you're as motivated and as driven a person, and and also one of the nicest people, as you can tell from this interview, that you're ever going to meet. But uh, what's coming up for you, and and where are you headed uh, musically? Well, again, as I said earlier, Basie and a lot of the, the great musicians they always inspire you to keep going down the road. I think uh, for young musicians. Sometimes you 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 you're you're in the middle of something. You don't really see where you're what's going to happen. Uh, I've been God has blessed me to be able to do a lot of things I never thought I would be able to do. Conducting is one. Uh, coming up, the the the, the one of the, the another blessing that's really happened to me is that in addition to working at, at Queens. Uh, I've, I'm the chief conductor of a band in Amsterdam called the Jazz Orchestra of the Concertgebouw. It's one oh, of the wow. best bands in the world. Yeah. Um, we, this band has been, they're, they're, we're celebrating uh, the 20th anniversary of the band, and that's coming up in July. So I'm going to go over there. We're going to conduct, I'm going to conduct at the Concertgebouw, uh, which is the band's home. We're doing concerts with Patty Austin. Uh, working with that band has been great. Talk about great brass players. I, 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 oh, yeah. I know that you, when you, we spoke about, uh, you know, Talking and saying hello to different people like that. Yella Shouten, great lead trumpet player for that band. He's yeah. another amazing player. Uh, Vim Bolt, who's w one of the other players in the band who plays lead for WDR, he's in our band as well. Mm. So nice. um, getting a chance to work with that band is a, is a privilege, and we've got a lot of things coming up. Uh, we just were in Jakarta in March. Like I say, we're in July. We've got concerts. Possibly going to China again for like the fourth time in November. Um, Another blessing being uh, working with the Danish radio hmm. big band. We've had a chance to work with them uh, as a, as a guest. Like I say, jazz orchestra, the concert. Well, that's that's uh, they're the band I I work with permanently. Um, but the Danish radio, I'm going to do a project with them in July. Uh, they're doing an Ella Fitzgerald uh, tribute. Um, going to work in in the Czech Republic with Bobby Shue. Oh wow! Awesome. Look, really awesome. looking forward to that. <laughs> I mean, th th there are so many blessings that uh, that you know. I can't. When you're young, I never thought I would be doing any of this. <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't. I was just happy to have a gig. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so to be able to, in, in addition to play, and with Bobby, that's as a drummer. So you know, I'm still playing as a drummer. 
arranging projects are coming up in, in, in Germany, in, in, uh, in Koblenz with an orchestra, the Rhine Phyllis Orchestra. It's a, another big, big band. It's, it's been kind of a blessing uh, being, being able to work as a drummer and as a conductor and as, a, as an arranger. So I'm just thrilled to be, A, still playing music, um, and to still be learning things from all of these people. Like say, still at Queens, we're almost finished with this semester, looking forward to the fall. So, you know, I, I thank God I'm good. Yeah, that is awesome. Well, you are one of the most inspiring people I've ever gotten to work with, and, uh, and I'm sure those thoughts are echoed by all those wonderful uh, bands that you're going to be working with. So, and, and we're very lucky to have gotten him today. Uh, you, you see, with that schedule, uh, we're, I'm just we're happy that you keep... <laughs> for those of you who are watching this, this man has been working really hard. I mean, A, just the quality of, of, of the recordings, of, of these videos, of everything you do, you're, you're, you're one of those people... Joe Williams always said, you know, you know, always, you know, you never know who's watching you. So always try to do your best because, mm -hmm. you know, you, there are people who are watching you might want to be like you. Don't disappoint them. You always always tell me that, you know, I've been watching you for a long time. <laughs> and, you know, whether it's the recordings, the books, the you know, you're you're class act always wow. on the horn. So you've thank you for, well, for, for, for allowing me for the, giving me the the leeway of like, well, I'll, I'll do it when I can. I'll thank you for, for sticking with me. I'm grateful to be yeah, here. That means a ton. Thank you so much, Dennis. And uh, once again, we appreciate you being with us today, and we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick.